Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for such fantastic stories. We thank you that you have not given us a boring word to read, but a but a, a thrilling and fascinating word to read that we might learn of you and be captivated by you and your your work in this world. As we look at uh, this story together, we pray that you would capture our imagination and that we would um, marvel at your faithfulness in the midst of storms and that we would uh, cling to Christ all the more, that uh, we would see him and hear him and uh, we would find life in him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you are closely following our progress through the book of Acts, uh, you will notice that we have skipped over a number of chapters this morning. And for several weeks, we traced Paul's ominous journey to Jerusalem. But after only two weeks in Jerusalem, we are rather anticlimactically already moving on skipping three whole chapters, and are now headed for Rome. And the reason for this cursory treatment of Paul's time in Jerusalem is because Paul is arrested very early on in his visit to that city, and the rest of his time there is spent in custody, defending himself by telling his story over and over again, and making appeals up the judicial ladder for the next highest court to hear his case. Paul was first arrested outside the temple in chapter 21. And the only reason the Romans arrested him was to actually spare his life. At the time of his arrest, Paul had been dragged out of the temple by a violent mob who considered Paul a threat to the purity and integrity of their religion. And Luke tells us that they had every intention of killing Paul. But the Romans stationed in Jerusalem, always leery of appearing to Rome to be unable to keep the peace in their territory, swooped in and rescued Paul by arresting him and dispersing the mob. Luke tells us that Paul was then brought indoors by the Romans to be, quote-unquote, examined by flogging. He was going to be waterboarded. But wise guy that he was, Paul waited for just the right moment, the moment the Roman soldier raised his whip in the air to strike the first blow to ask if they seriously intended to beat a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And at that moment, the stakes surrounding Paul were greatly ratcheted up, for the Romans had an obligation to give Paul, a Roman citizen, a fair trial. They had mistreated him by arresting him and tying him up, and now they feared what might happen to them because they had mistreated a Roman citizen. So they began to try to get to the bottom of Paul's case. They invited the Jewish religious leaders who wanted him dead to come and make their case against Paul. But Paul, being the wise guy he was, brought up a hot topic that he knew divided the religious leaders, and the whole thing came off the rails and became violent once again. And once again, the Romans had to remove Paul from the scene in order to preserve his life. The Romans then decided to move Paul under cover of darkness out of tense Jerusalem to the more controlled environment of Caesarea, where he would appear before the next highest authority, Felix, the governor. Felix held Paul in prison for two whole years, 
before his term as governor eventually ended and Festus took his place. And with Festus, the religious leaders renewed their campaign to have Paul killed. They went back down to Caesarea and again pleaded their case with the new governor. But this time, Paul had a trick up his sleeve. He appealed to Caesar in Rome, the supreme court of the Roman world. And being a Roman citizen, Festus granted Paul his appeal. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so this morning we find Paul on a ship bound for Rome as a prisoner where he will plead his case before Caesar. As you heard when Sandy read the passage for you just now, this trip to Rome was not without its troubles. The wind was against them and it slowed their progress. Fall was turning to winter and in verse 8 we find them in a place called Fair Havens. Despite its pleasant sounding name, this was apparently not a place suitable for them to spend the winter. The pilot and the owner of the ship were anxious to get to a place called Phoenix that was much more suitable to spend the winter in. But Phoenix was 45 miles away yet, and Paul was opposed to such a dangerous trip. Even though he was a prisoner, he ventured to speak up, and in verse 10 said, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the soldier guarding him and the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship paid him no attention. And despite Paul's warning, they pulled up the anchor and set sail the second they thought that favorable winds had come upon them. But the winds which started out favorable soon changed and began to violently toss the ship back and forth and forwards and backwards until everyone was convinced they were all going to die. They had thrown all their cargo overboard and hadn't eaten or seen the sun or stars in days and were therefore quite disoriented, all except Paul, who in the midst of the storm kept his calm. As the crew scrambled and ran to and fro, Paul assured them in verse 22 to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of this ship. And Paul was right. Because after 14 days of darkness and being shoved around by the sea, the the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. And fearful that they might run into the rocks, in verse 29, they put down four anchors and prayed for day to come. Through the night, Paul, the prisoner, fed them and encouraged them to stay in the ship. And despite despite the temptation to get in a boat and make for land on their own. And when day did finally break, they were able to see a beach. They pulled up their anchors and loosened their rudder and hoped to run the ship aground on the beach. But instead they struck a reef, and the ship began to break into pieces. Paul instructed those men who could swim to jump into the sea and swim to shore, while those who could not swim clung to the wood floating in the vast sea and were pushed ashore by the waves. The ship was ruined but not one man lost his life. What a fantastic story. But what are we to do with it? What benefit is it to us as Christians? And to answer that question, we're actually going to read this story as an allegory this morning. I don't typically recommend reading your Bibles allegorically, but in this situation, I think there's actually merit in doing so, because Luke's stated intention 
For his book is found on the lips of Jesus in the first chapter of Acts, where he tells his apostles that they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke is tracing the fulfillment of Jesus' expansion project by demonstrating in 28 chapters how the gospel did actually spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But Luke has an interesting task. He must demonstrate both fulfillment and yet incompletion at the same time. He must demonstrate the apostles' fulfillment of Jesus' commission and yet leave room for you to pick up where they left off in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. For Luke, there's no better way of doing this than for the story to end in Rome, the hub of the Greco-Roman Empire, the distribution center into the rest of the Gentile world. In Rome, Jesus' expansion project finds both a fulfillment and a new beginning. One scholar puts it this way, Rome points to the ends of the earth and an expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. Rome is the end of the earth in Acts, and Rome points to the end of the earth in Acts. It is a fulfillment for the apostles and a starting line for you. And so as Paul boards a ship for Rome, we are watching the church leave Jerusalem bound for the ends of the earth, for Rome and beyond. And Paul's experience on that ship teaches us what the church can expect to experience as Christians seek to fulfill Jesus' commission as his witnesses in this vast ocean of a world, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. The winds may begin favorably, but winds are subject to change. This was certainly the experience of the early church, was it not? When in her infancy she grew exponentially and thousands joined the church at a time, Luke tells stories of 3,000 and 5,000 people becoming Christians in a single day, but the winds changed. And in just 50 years, Christians were being burned alive as human torches to illuminate the emperor's evening games. You think twice before getting on board in those sorts of waters. Winds are liable to change. And the church, which at first enjoys smooth sailing, will eventually find herself in an inhospitable environment, and her occupants will begin to become fearful and anxious. But within her is one man who has kept his calm, and from him we learn lessons from the sea. From him we learn how to endure the wind and the waves of this world and escape with our lives the salvation of our souls. For the Christian life is not about preserving our physical lives at the expense of our souls, but preparing our souls for an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, embodied eternity. And one man teaches us the way. And this man in our story is the Apostle Paul. It's not really Paul. Paul is a reflection in this story, an echo. Paul is meant to get your imaginative juices flowing Who does he remind you of in this story? What other story do you know of a man remaining calm on a boat at sea that's being tossed by the wind and waves while the occupants in the boat panic? It's Jesus, of course. Paul's composure during the storm is pointing us 
to Jesus. In Matthew 8, Jesus is asleep on a boat that's being tossed about on the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples are freaking out. In a frenzy, they shake Jesus awake and inform him that they are going to die. But Jesus calmly and rather ironically asks them why they are afraid before commanding the waves and the wind to be calm, and they became calm. This story isn't about Paul on a boat bound for Rome, but it's about Jesus guiding his church through a world that is opposed to him and consequently opposed to his followers. But just as he overcame the storm on the Sea of Galilee, so too he reassures us in the Gospel of John that he has overcome the world as well. In this world you will have tribulation, he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm greater than it. So we listen and we watch Paul as he teaches us lessons from the sea. But we also strain our eyes and our ears to look through him and to hear Jesus speaking. The Apostle Paul never claimed to teach anything that he did not learn from the risen Christ. He was a messenger, not an inventor. So through Paul, Jesus is teaching us how to live in a world opposed to Christianity so that we endure, yes, with bodies weakened and spirits dampened, but with souls made durable through perseverance and faith. So here are our lessons from the sea. The first is, listen to the prisoner and stay in the boat. Listen to the prisoner and stay in the boat. When the owner of the ship, his captain and his crew, were in fair havens and debating whether or not to risk it and make a push to get to Phoenix before winter, it was Paul alone, the inconsequential prisoner, who objected. The captain said, Onward, progress, pull up the anchors that are holding us back. But Paul urged restraint and warned that progress really isn't progress if it leads you into dangerous waters that threaten your life. But who was Paul? What did he know? He was a nobody to the so-called authorities of this world, a fool to be ignored like Jesus Christ. But Paul was right. Turns out his words were prophetic. You see, Christianity offers this secret wisdom about how the world was created to best work, but the world considers it folly, like the rantings of an inconsequential prisoner who is easily ignored. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Die so that you may truly live. Forgive, love, and pray for your enemies. The first will be last and the last will be first. Life is sacred and its value is not to be measured by its utility. Identity comes from God, not from within a person. All of these things chafe against the beliefs of the world and the world declares Christianity folly or worse, illegal. Just in October of this year, a judge in Britain ruled that belief in Genesis 1.27 is quote-unquote incompatible with human dignity and conflicts with the fundamental rights of others. Not just folly, illegal. Now those are choppy waters. And yet the prisoner says... Stay in the boat. For the sake of your lives, stay in the boat. In verse 31, when some of the men attempted to abandon ship and make way for the shore on their own in one of the ship's lifeboats, Paul warned them that doing so would result in their death. You must stay in the boat. 
You must commit yourself to the church and to the foolish teachings of the saints and apostles of our Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is life to be had in listening to the teachings of the prisoner. But his words are, are so difficult to believe that it takes repetition over the course of many years for them to take root in us and shape us. It takes years of listening to him tell you, I love you just because you're mine. Before your soul can finally rest from its ceaseless efforts to impress. It takes years of hearing that you are forgiven for the guilt and shame to begin to fade. It takes years of listening to him remind you that you are saved by faith and not by works before you can admit that you can do nothing to make him love you any more than he already does in Christ. And once you begin to believe these relational realities, then you'll learn to trust him and submit to him on the things that chafe against your cultural and familial sensibilities. And he will lead you in truth, body and soul, into the eternity that he has planned for you. But he's the prisoner. And he says, stay in the boat. Unlikely advice from an unlikely place. But there's life in him and in those words. Listen to the prisoner and stay in the boat. That's the first and longest lesson from the sea. And the second is, eat the meal that is given to you. In verse 33, when the violence of the storm was at its worst and the men on the boat were at their weakest, Paul does the most fascinating thing. He serves them a meal. He reminds them, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you, the, give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And so Paul took bread, and having given thanks, broke it. And he gave it to the men, and, sus- and to sustain them for the long day they had ahead of them. Again I ask you, does Paul not tickle your brains here? Does he not remind you of someone else? The answer is still Jesus. It always is. And just as Paul fed the sailors to strengthen their bodies for the long day ahead, so Jesus gives us his body and his blood, the body and blood of the resurrected Christ, to strengthen our souls in faithfulness to him during the days that we have been given on this earth, the long days ahead. It is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper I'm alluding to here, and it's spiritual food that really and truly nourishes our souls in faith. John Calvin writes of the Lord's Supper, Here then is the singular consolation which we derive from the Supper. It directs and leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ and to His resurrection to certify to us that whenever, whatever iniquity there may be in us, the Lord nevertheless recognizes and accepts us as righteous. Whatever materials of death may be in us, He nevertheless gives us life. Whatever misery may be in us, He nevertheless fills us with all felicity and joy. Or to explain the matter more simply, as in ourselves we are devoid of all good and have not one particle of what might help to procure salvation, the supper is an attestation that having been made partakers of the death and passion of Jesus Christ, we have everything that is useful and salutary to us. The, sum, the, the supper 
is a source of comfort and a cause for celebration. It's no wonder that John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, insisted on celebrating the Supper every week. It's no wonder that the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every week and sometimes more. Through that holy meal, we are by faith dining not just with, but on the resurrected Jesus. And He mysteriously and graciously enters into us in order to strengthen us from within for the long day and night that the church has ahead of her. And for however many years of life each and every one of us has left in this world. Eat the meal that's given to you. Listen to the prisoner. Stay in the boat. Eat the meal that's given to you. And finally, cling to the wood. When the boat strikes a reef in verse 41 and begins to break into pieces, Paul instructs those who are unable to swim to jump into the water and cling to the wood. It's the wood that made up the ship which will carry them safely to the shore. If Paul is speaking to sailors adrift in the Mediterranean Sea, but he might as well be speaking to Christians navigating life in this tumultuous and uncertain world. There can be no, no better advice for the Christian than to cling to the wood. That wood, of course, being the wood of the cross. For when our lives begin to break into pieces through depression or divorce or death, an unwelcome diagnosis, unemployment, disaster, addiction, the list goes on and on and on. When we experience a threat to our life and our faith, the thing to do is to cling to the cross. It is by the cross that we approach God and are found acceptable to Him. It is by the cross that we have been redeemed from our life of ignorance and sin. It is through the cross that all things will find healing and be made new. As the wind and the waters beat against you, cling to the cross. For what Jesus accomplished for you on that cross is sufficient to save your soul and to reconcile you to God our Father. Jesus is able to carry you through this world. He teaches you. Listen to the prisoner. Stay in the boat. He gives you His grace. Eat the meal that He has given you. And He saves you by carrying you when you are unable to swim or tread water in this world any longer. Put all your weight on Him. Rest on Him. And He will carry you safely through this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.